0: It's really nice to be here this morning. I uh, I regret that I've waited until today to come and visit Sunnyside. Uh, I've intended to do this for a long time. So one observation I have to make is you guys are a lot better at sitting close to the front than my people are. We are all, I don't know what's going on, but we are packed like sardines in this back corner, and if we were a boat, we would be listing ready to capsize, so... Hats off to you guys. Rex up here on the front row, way to go. Um, w- last night, Nathan was doing the welcome, and he said, I want to let all of you know that these front four pews are perfectly safe. <laughs> they will hold you. So you guys know that, and, uh, and I'm, I'm pleased and, and grateful for that. Um, I want to just begin by saying thank you uh, to you as a church, to Sunnyside, because you have been a great, great blessing to Wheatland. We've been here for 18 months now, I think it is. We, uh, I think, moved in in August uh, a year and a half ago, and it has been just a real joy and a real pleasure for us. Wheatland is 14 years old, and in the 14 years that we've been a church, we've shared space with three other congregations and four other buildings and you guys have been the easiest to work with. Yay. Now, that and yes, you should uh, you should give yourself a round of applause. Not that uh, um, you 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 really deserve it. You guys are really really easy to work with, and uh, and I really appreciate Ron and Rob and uh, and all of you for the uh, for the hospitality that you've expressed to us. Uh, and I want to thank Joel as well. Joel was our first contact, and and things have just. Uh, Uh, have worked really, really well for us. Now, it may be that we're just getting better at sharing after 14 (laughs) years. Um, But in reality, it it is you and your uh, support and encouragement of us. It means a lot uh, to our congregation. And from all of Wheatland, I want to say thank you. And with that, I want to invite you to, I think there was a slide for this earlier, to the Ash Wednesday service that we have here on... uh, the 26th of February, um, and it'll be at 7 o'clock that night. All of you are welcome to join us for that. We would love, we'd love to have you come and be a part. I also want to mention this. I, uh, the Wheatland Mission has, for many years, has been, uh, we, we describe ourselves as a partner with the Hilltop Urban Church, which is about uh, a mile as the crow flies uh, down the road. And, uh, and what that means is that Nathan and I will on occasion, about once a month, each of us will go and preach at, uh, at Hilltop. Uh, we share certain uh, uh, supports with each other. We do some youth ministry stuff together, uh, camps and things like that. And we've enjoyed them a lot. And one of the things that I enjoy about going to Hilltop is that they have a completely different catalog of songs when we go and worship. And their catalog of songs is basically 19... 88 to about 1995, vineyard worship music, and I love it. Uh, it's like going back in time. But the people at my church, there's just a few of us who even remember uh, 1988 to 1995, sadly. <laughs> so coming here today, I only recognized one song that you did, and I, I enjoyed, very much enjoyed the worship. You guys did a really great job. But I was moved by the song that you Actually, there's two songs. The last two songs I recognized. But the song, 10,000 Reasons. I wanted to just mention this very briefly. Um, there's a young man by the name of Ryan who was a part of our church for about almost 10 years. And Ryan was one of our worship leaders. Ryan did an excellent job leading worship. And for the entire course of his time with us at Wheatland, Ryan was suffering from a very debilitating, uh, ultimately fatal disease. And 10,000 Reasons was one of, his, one of the songs that he sang the most. And for all of us at Wheatland, we don't sing it as much. We will, but we sing it kind of with a, a note of uh, reverence and, and gratitude uh, for the ministry that Ryan provided us over many years. And he was a great, great friend. And one of my favorite memories of Ryan leading worship was leading worship with a ukulele and we sang, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Now, I'll tell you what, I don't like ukuleles at all. Um, but when a young man who, has, who is facing mortality, who has three young children, sings Great is Thy Faithfulness on a ukulele, uh, it's overwhelmingly beautiful and powerful. So those songs remind me of Ryan, and I appreciate you guys leading us in worship with that this morning. That. That was good, really, really good for me. And again, it's also great to see that it's possible to sit up this close. So, thank you all. At Wheatland, we've been in a series. I, I forgot. I need to. Oh, good. I. We do things just a little bit different. So I need to know. Uh, I, I need to learn to use the clicker. I teach every once in a while, or not every once in a while. Every semester, I teach at Friends. And I make the mistake when I want to advance a slide to reach over and point it at the screen. And I realize, I don't know if you know this, it doesn't work. Um, So I've got to point it back there. At Wheatland we've been in a series called Experiencing God. A series on how we participate in the life of God. But if you notice it's Experiencing God with a question mark at the end. Some of you may remember Henry Blackaby's book back in the 90's, Experiencing God. It was a great Bible study and it had a enormous impact, I think. Um, But I thought it would be good for our congregation to go through a series called Experiencing God because what I've noticed is that a lot of our people don't always experience God. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. We can start off and say, well, it's just sin. Well, that might be true. But I think there's something more at work. And let me describe it to you. It's been called the secular age. That is, we live today in the 21st century in the Western world, the United States, Western Europe, Canada, and so forth. We live in what's called a secular age. And here's one way I'll describe it for you. In 1991, I graduated from college. I knew three people who would call themselves atheists. I knew another three or four who might call themselves agnostics. Today, if I were to take the time with a sheet of paper, I could write out the name of 25 atheists and agnostics. What's changed? And most of them are younger people. See, I think a lot of us struggle from time to time feeling God's presence. But I think that struggle might increase because of this thing we call the secular age. And the secular age, here's the, here's the bottom line of it. The secular age isn't just out there where secularism is trying to get us. The reality is, is that we're all swimming in the secular age. It's the air we breathe. It's, it's all around us. And even though we have a deep faith in Christ, we're still living in a world that's secular on a level that we're not aware of. And you don't have to get your phones out for this, but our fo- I was reaching back to grab mine, but I, I don't have it. Um, the, the, our, our cell phones are a great way of illustrating this reality. With my phone, do you realize nobody can, nobody can lie anymore or brag anymore? Um, because if you say something that's not true, somebody's going to go... Liar. Um, That's not not fair. Um, I used to be able to tell a lot more stories before everybody had smartphones. Um, But here's the bottom line. The smartphone is just a, a symbol of how we're so completely connected with every aspect of the world. And there's good things about that. But then there's other things that are not so good about it. So without going into too much more detail on the secular age, let me uh, just illustrate this one idea to you. I think in the secular age, there are no longer mysteries that cause us to be odd. Instead, there are only problems to be explained. Okay? That, or problems, rather, to be solved. That is to say, when we look up at the stars at night... I think as we continue through the secular age, fewer and fewer of us are going to be moved by the sheer beauty and grandeur of it. And we're going to slip into this this, uh, attitude of, you know, it is amazing, but those are just giant balls of gas out there burning. And you know what? That's true. They are giant balls of gas. But aren't they mysterious? And therefore, calling us... To remember the creator. And there's a lot of other examples of this. But let me finish with one last thing. Christian faith in the secular age. And when I say finish. I'm not done. Just with this little part. Um, In the secular age. Christianity is not so much. Being uh, pushed out. Of every arena. As much as it's being ignored. And I think that is the symbol of the secular age. Not that Christianity is being actively fought, and there's instances where it certainly is, but I think much worse than that is nobody cares about it anymore. Um, Jamie Smith, a writer from Calvin College says this, and this I think is true of many young people, uh, many of the people even within my church, It's not that they, he puts it this way. He says, we don't believe instead of doubting. We believe in spite of our doubts. We are all Thomas now. Thomas, the disciple who doubted Christ's resurrection. We don't believe without doubt. We believe in spite of it. And that is the challenge for us in this secular age. Let me pray and uh, I'll continue. Father, I want to begin by saying thank you for Sunnyside Baptist Church. I pray that you would bless them and encourage them. And remind them, Lord, that you are in their midst and that you are on their side. And that you have goals and dreams and visions for them. And Lord, help us see the world around us for what it is. Allow us to participate in your divine nature Empower us to be faithful to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Do any of you recognize this guy? This is uh, G.K. Chesterton. um, At the turn, not of the most recent century, but the century before, the turn of the 1900s. He was a great Victorian essayist, uh, newspaper or magazine editor, and gadfly. I don't really know what a gadfly is, but he's been... described that way. He was an observer of the social uh, world of his time. One day the Times of London put this uh, headline out. It says, what is wrong with the world today? And the Times of London were inviting information, were inviting responses from its readers. And G.K. Chesterton responded with what I think is very, very powerful. He said, dear sir, I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? I am what's wrong with the world. I want to contrast that with one of my favorite stories from the Old Testament. It's in Genesis chapter 3. It's the story when God goes looking for Adam and Eve after Adam and Eve have eaten of the fruit. and And when I say looking, God probably knows where they are. But he does shout out to them, where are you? And they tell him, what? We're hiding because we're naked and we're afraid and ashamed. And then God responds by saying, who told you you were naked? Which, by the way, there's a month of sermons in that question. I'll have to come back for it. Don't have time. Um, the next question, though, that he asks is what I want us to think about today. He asks, who told you that you were naked? And they respond uh, that... Uh, and, 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 uh, Excuse me, I lost my place there. <laughs> um, they, Adam responds and says, I'm sorry, God asked the third question, which is, did you eat of the fruit of the tree? And Adam's response is amazing. In one sentence, 15 words, and in one fell swoop, Adam blames everyone else for his wrongdoing. The woman you gave me gave me the fruit and I ate it. He literally blames everyone else in the cosmos for what he did wrong. <clears throat> Way to go, Adam. <laughs> Way to ruin everything for the rest of us. See what I did there? I did the same thing that Adam did. So I think Chesterton's response and Adam's response really are opposites to each other. When we're confronted with the immorality of our actions, we tend to follow Adam's lead and not G.K. Chesterton's lead. You see, morality describes what is right and what is wrong and how we are to respond when we fail to do the one and when we too often do the other. Ethics is another way of saying that same thing. It is our behavior in our relationship to that which is right, right, the right thing to do. At Wheatland, for several weeks now, we've been asking the question, Why do we often fail to experience God? And there's a lot of reasons for this. Some of them I've mentioned related to the idea of a secular age. We also are just overwhelmed with things, right? Life is busy and difficult and burdensome. Not to mention the fact we have more information flying at us, more things to think about, more decisions to make than ever before. And it's difficult for us to get away into the kind of desert experience that Jesus had when he began his ministry, the desert experience that Moses had when he saw the burning bush, the desert experience of Elijah when God spoke to him in the sound of sheer silence. Why is it that we fail to experience God? Again, there's a lot of reasons, but one reason that I think is worth our attention today is that we have maybe forgotten that we can experience God Through right living, through moral behavior, through ethical living, by lining up ourselves with the moral of God's story, which brings me to a passage of scripture I want us to reflect on a little bit this morning. It's in 2 Peter chapter 1. If I can get it up here on the screen. See, I was pointing it in the wrong direction. Um, Oh, I went too far, didn't I? Did it again. There we go. All right. Um, How did I do that? Okay, I'm not gonna touch it. No (laughs) buttons. Let me just read to you from uh, 2 Peter. And this is chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power, God's divine power, has given us everything needed for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Thus, he has given us through these things his precious and very great promises so that through them you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of lust and may become participants of the divine nature. That last line, hear that again. We may become participants of the divine nature. We don't hear that very much in other parts of Scripture. Now, at Wheatland, we joke that nobody's ever going to call Wheatland legalistic. And I think that's a good thing. But just because we're not legalistic does not mean that we're not moral people. We're still called, and this is true of Wheatland, of, of, of Sunnyside, of every Christian church out there, we're still called to live thoroughly moral lives. And I want us to keep in mind there's no justice in the world without some level of morality. Morality is simply the description of what is right and wrong. And morality and and action is called ethics. Now, and this is a a big pause I want to throw out here. I, I think it's important that I express that being perfectly moral, perfectly chaste, perfectly generous, perfectly good does not make one acceptable to God. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I think we know that. Our relationship with the God of the universe is interpersonal. It's not a transaction. God's love for me is not based on how good I can be. Acceptance of me through Christ does not rely upon me being a good person. In our relationship with God, there is no quid pro quo. And that's as political as I'll get this weekend. But there is no quid pro quo. Instead, God is this complete outpouring of graciousness and goodness. Romans 5 reminds us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All of the impetus, all of the start is on God's side of the equation. Life in Christ is not a contract that I fulfill. But life in Christ is a covenant. And the nature of a covenant is a relationship. So this is the critical thing for us to hold on to. Our right behavior does not make us right before God but our right behavior is a right response to what God has done for us. If my wife were to buy me a new pair of running shoes, we would have a good laugh because I don't run. But if I did, it would be unkind of me not to use those running shoes that she's given me. The appropriate response is not to go out and buy her a pair, but the appropriate response is for me to put those running shoes on and go out and get in shape or blow out a knee. I don't know which would happen at this stage of my life. You see what that means? Our right behavior is a proper and fitting response to the gift that we've been given. And I want to suggest to us that living good lives, moral lives, is not about fulfilling little rules, but it's about responding to the gift that we've been given in Christ. So you might rightly ask, whose morality am I supposed to live by? This is a big question today. Whose morality? And to me, the answer here is very simple. Follow the morality that is associated with the best story to back it up. And I am convinced that the best story behind any moral system out there is the story of God and Christ. And it's bound up in what we call the Old Testament as God's working with Israel, and the New Testament as God works through Christ and in the church. That story of moral living is the best story out there. Now, it's sometimes been twisted, and we've seen examples of this, and we shouldn't waste too much of our time going into that, but we have to acknowledge that the moral story represented in the Old and New Testaments has not always been lived out well by the church. we got to own it. can't deny it. But that does not mean that the story that it emerges from is not the right story. We think the best story of all is what we call the gospel, where the second member of the Trinity enters our world, lives a perfect life, is anointed king after the manner of David, was killed for it, was brought back to life by God through the Spirit, and now has ascended as that king over all of the universe. To experience God, to participate in his divine nature, as 2 Peter tells us, means that we have to live by this story. So morality is one way that we tell the story of the world. And morality asks, Christian morality asks the question, and by the way, I think all moral systems in one way or another ask this question. They ask, what is good? What is the good life? And who is the good person? And the story of Christ tells us that fully. This is a really critical point, I think. Our morality comes from a story, it's not made up out of whole cloth, it's not something that's just whipped up for a sermon or a blog post, or a TED Talk. Morality is not uh, random or abstract. It emerges from God's interaction with his people. So when Peter, writing in the late 1st century, is talking about not being deceived or drawn away by the evils of lust, he's not just talking about sexual sin. He's talking about the fact that all sin comes from disordered desire and disordered freedom. So living by the story that Jesus gives us means that our desires become once again rightly ordered. Let me illustrate how our desires get disordered in this secular age. And it has to do with this great word, a word that we love in the United States, the word freedom. The word freedom. The world's story of freedom is that we are free from. Think about that for a minute. We are free from anybody telling us what to do. We are free from any paradigms being laid over us to direct our lives. We're free from. But the biblical story of freedom is not that. You see, in the biblical story of freedom, you're not free from who you are. You have to be who you are. In the biblical story of freedom, it's not freedom from, it is freedom for or freedom to, the freedom to become the person that God has called you to become, freedom to become that person. And in the Christian version of freedom, if we are free from something, we are freed from sin, which emphasizes freedom from everything else. So being a part of God's kingdom means that the notion of a kingdom implies territory, right? Now the territory that God desires us to enter into and, and that, we, that God desires his spirit to enter into is not Canada. I mean, God wants his spirit in Canada. But uh, he's not talking, he doesn't want his people to go and invade another territory and take it over. He's talking about the territory of our hearts. And it's time that God's Spirit, through us participating in the divine nature, it's time for God's Spirit to recolonize our hearts and make us new, new people. Let me share one more version of this verse for you. Um, Did I go? Keep pointing it the wrong direction. This comes from the old J.B. Phillips version. Do any of you remember the J.B. Phillips version of the Bible? It was the original message, uh, the message, I suppose, uh, written in the 50s, and it is great. It's, uh, I love it. But he, he translates this passage this way. He says, It is through him that God's greatest and most precious promises have become available to us men, making it possible for you to escape the inevitable disintegration that lust produces in the world and to share in God's essential nature. The... Inevitable disintegration. Now, what Peter is identifying here is the reality that in time, things crumble. That when we don't respond appropriately to the Spirit of God, things crumble and fall apart. Moral living prevents that, or at least stems that tide. Even though it doesn't make us right with God... It helps us operate with the grain of God's universe. Now, I've not gotten into the details very much of what's moral and what's not. Uh, We could spend days uh, going over a list of behaviors. But we probably don't need to do that. If any of us, and this was my word to our church last night, if any of us are struggling with this, knowing what's right and what's wrong, I challenge you just to go back to the Bible, go back to the story, go back to the tradition that you've been given. And if you think it's wrong, my challenge to you is to simply re-engage it, take it more seriously, give it and you another chance. You see, morality teaches us to say no to ourselves. I've been crucified with Christ. Take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. Morality teaches us to say no to ourselves so that our character can grow and so that we can say yes to God, so that we can say yes to God. Otherwise, we're blinded. I think at its root, experiencing God means learning to participate in his life now, in the midst of a world that can't hear his voice, in a world that won't accept it even when it hears it. And I think by partaking in the divine nature, that act begins with us listening to a different story, listening to this old story. And I think it's illustrated by what um, G.K. Chesterton said earlier. Kind of skip through this. What's wrong with the world? Chesterton responds by saying, I am. We're not blaming anybody else. I am. In the church, we call this repentance. And I'm going to close right now with a prayer of repentance over all of us. And I invite you as I pray simply to enter into that prayer with me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you through your sacrifice, through your resurrection that you have raised us to new life, that you have forgiven us for every wrong that we would ever do. And you did this a long, long time ago. Today, Lord, we come before you asking that you would give us hearts of repentance. When there is problems in the world, when there is evil in the world, we can simply say, whose problem is it? Whose fault is it? It's mine. Work through me, God. Give us the wisdom that we need to respond faithfully and appropriately to your gracious gift of forgiveness. And we pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen.